Good morning. Let's ask God for his help. We do ask that your power and the work of the Holy Spirit within us would enable us to absorb what you have to say in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our Bible passage comes from Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. While you're finding your passage in your Bibles or in your tablet or whatever it is, or your phone, let me say I'm so uh, glad to be here and at this special occasion, and I hope to say hello to many of you afterwards. So um, in this time, we are blessed to be able to hear God's word. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, am partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven stands are the seven churches. May the Lord bless to our hearts the reading of his word. Have you ever felt that your life was out of control? Yeah, not pleasant. Well, part of the news from the Bible and from this passage even is you will never be in thorough control of your own life. And you are children I think you know better sometimes than the adults that you're not in control of your own life. You think, well, my parents are in control. 
But there's things that your parents cannot do if you get sick. Your parents cannot simply snap their fingers and get you well again. They are not in control of your life either. They do what they can. They've been of God for that. Part of the message of this vision is that there are only three persons in control of everything. Three persons who are one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we are presented with a vision here of the second person of the Trinity. It is a vision of Christ, of course, reveals the Father, and who is us through the work of the Spirit who comes from him to dwell in us. The message is that these three persons, the one God, are in control of this particular past, since Jesus Christ, our Lord, as the ruler and the judge of the whole universe. He is the one in charge of the universe, of the Andromeda galaxy, of the stars and heavens, of your life, of every molecule that is running around in yourselves. He is also the judge. He is the, both the first and the last. If you go near the end of our passage, you see that title, I'm the first and the last. That's actually a title of God. It is God alone who was there in the beginning, first, before anything was made, before you and I were made, before the universe was made. It is God who ascend as the judge. There are other features of this passage that point in the same direction. Now, it's a mysterious passage in many ways. This is a vision of Christ, not a photograph. And visions, they're more like dreams in some ways, that they're symbolic representations of things, not a literal photograph of what you will see when Christ returns. It is a symbolic representation of who he is. This representation, there's not time to cover all the details, representation is drawn partly from chapter 7, verses 7, uh, 9 to 10, which is a vision of the Ancient of Days. Now, the Ancient of Days, that's just God. So it's identifying Christ as God, but the Ancient of Days is sitting on a throne with ten thousands round about him, and the books are opened, and judgment is pronounced. So it's Christ as judge. The other passage main passage, there are several actually that are drawn on, but the other main passage is Ezekiel chapter 1, at the end of a, a spectacular vision of God appearing to Ezekiel, in verses 26 and 27, again features that are replicated in this vision of Christ. Well, in Ezekiel, what's going on there? God is again appearing to, to pronounce judgment now against his own people, because they've been disobedient and they wayward. So this is a tremendously solemn passage. It is the judge of the universe, the ruler of the universe, simultaneously, God himself appearing, because Christ is God, now is also the hint in his human form, reminding us to us, and taking on human nature, and become man for us, and we'll talk about that. But the other thing to notice, before you notice all the details, is that he's standing among seven lampstands. Now, the end of the passage identifies the seven lampstands as the seven churches which are there in Asia Minor in what is now western Turkey. The seven 
the sevenness representing completeness because it's representative of the whole church. It's representative of this church here, All Saints Church, along with all the other churches, not only in this city, but throughout the world. All these churches, Christ is standing in the midst, but he's standing not simply as the ruler, but also a judge, judge of things that go right and wrong. There's messages to the seven churches, which again we cannot get into, in chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus says over and over again, I know your works. I know your tribulation. He knows the situation, and he pronounces sometimes blessings on what has been going right, and sometimes then warnings and threats against churches that have gone astray. So one of the lessons to draw right away here is that Christ is ruler not only but of you. Now that's whether you like it or not. Now most of you, most of you in this room, I believe, are already followers of Christ. I'm not going to assume it's everybody. But if you're a follower of Christ, you are a willing servant of Christ. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, you're still under his control. Everything that happens in your life. And he's in control of the church, of every church in the world, of All Saints Church here. And one of the negative lessons is to say, you are not. Now, that, that message can come hard to Americans. Because when America was founded, it was deliberately done that we had no king. Right? The, the powers of the government are distributed and are limited because we don't want a king who's going to tyrannize over us. Well, the message here is a very different message. Jesus is a king. But fortunately, he's a good king. Right? He's an all king, and we'll talk about that. So it's very different than the kings of this world who, as sinners, like everybody else, are going to make some bad decisions along with the good ones. Now, the other thing is, even with kings of this world, now we recently had uh, Charles III uh, installed as the next king of England, before him, Queen Elizabeth VII. And, and the British will say that their kings or queens, they reign, but do not rule. They accorded honor, you're reigning, but you're really not doing anything. You don't have much power. <laughs> well, Jesus is not only a reigning king, but he's a ruling king. And uh, unfortunately, we've got to adjust. Unfortunately, Americans don't adjust sometimes, but we've got to adjust the fact that the church is not a democracy. The church is not ruled by the people who are in it. It is ruled by Christ. It's not ruled by Pastor Justin. It's not ruled by your elders. Now, they are under shepherds. You can read about it in 1 Peter 5 and in other places in the New Testament. They are under shepherds. Actually, pastor is another, the Greek word is the name for shepherd, right? They are shepherds. You're the flock. They are under shepherds, but they're not the chief shepherd. They're not supposed to do anything that is not commanded by the chief shepherd, by Christ himself. Now, you've got to make sure that you understand that Pastor Justin and your elders 
are people of flesh and blood who are redeemed sinners. Like They are going to make mistakes, sometimes innocent mistakes, sometimes sinful mistakes. But they are not in ultimate charge. It is Christ who rules the church. And if your leaders have sense, and I'm speaking now to my own son, Pastor Justin, (laughs) if they have sense, they're going to be pleading with Christ to be the leader and to submit to his rule along with all the rest of you. Now that's important because from time to time, decisions are going to be made in this church that you will not like. You will disagree with. Tough. Because you are not in Right? And it's a very important message to have. If you become a follower of Christ, you've said, I'm giving up what control I had of my own life, which was not really very competent. Think about it. If you had complete control of your life, what would, would happen? You would mess it up. <laughs> so it's actually a good thing. Right? This is good news because we have a controller who is completely competent and completely powerful to do what is right. Now, you should be praying, that means, right? Praying for your leaders that they will follow Christ themselves. But even when mistakes are made, and mistakes are made in your life, right? Whether sometimes innocent mistakes, you think, ah, I wish I hadn't bought this house because it's got all kinds of problems that I found out about only after I moved in. Innocent mistake. Sometimes sinful mistakes. Sometimes having devastating consequences. Jesus can still deal with them. Jesus can deal with whatever is going on in this church. And even the mistakes that are made can be used for good. That's the story of his life on earth, right? He is ministering to people who are in distress, some of whom are deeply in sin. There are prostitutes. There are tax collectors who are compromisers with the Roman government, which is an oppressive government. There are people like that. He's willing to come in and minister in their lives. Now, the next thing I want you to know, we can't can't deal with it all. The next thing I want you to, to notice here is the description of some of the features of Jesus symbolically represented. So the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. That comes from Daniel 9, where the the representation is of his wisdom. But then it's reinforced by the next uh, passage. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, you see, if you were, we had time when we go over to chapter 2 and verse 18, it mentions this feature again. And it says uh, that he, he, he's the one who searches minds and hearts. The representation here is a penetrating vision, right? It's like a laser beam that can burn through whatever is in the way and see into your heart. Now, that's both frightening and comforting. Let's deal with the fright at first. Because there are things that you don't want anybody else to see. I know because I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> there are things that are embarrassing. 
And there are things that are actually sinful. There are things that we even conceal from ourselves. So you're in the midst of doing good deeds. And everybody looks at you and says, wow, there goes an upstanding citizen of Boise. But in your heart, you're doing it out of pride. You're doing it for the favor and approval of men. If you're doing it for that reason, Jesus knows it. He sees right into the heart. Or let's say you were an excellent worker at your job. But actually, that, that excellence is because you're just super good at it. And uh, in fact, you're, you're sloughing off in your heart. Well, Jesus sees that inside. Or you're envious of somebody else who is rich or beautiful. You don't say anything about it. Jesus knows that. Or you have basically something you worship other than God in your heart. You worship relationships, children, wealth, prestige, whatever it is. Jesus sees that. That's the frightening part. The good news is that Jesus is able to do something about it. All the psychologists and all the counselors and all the politicians of the world are unable to penetrate thoroughly into the insides of people. They're unable to know everything comprehensively. They're unable to know the future. You need somebody in your life, and I need somebody, and the church needs somebody who is all-knowledgeable and who can deal with the problems of the heart and not simply the problems outside. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ is like. That's what this symbolism of his eyes stands for. And then it goes on to say, in a, I'm skipping over some things. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Well, those are the seven the angels of the seven churches. These are superhuman agents that are able to accomplish his will. It just in, reinforces his power. And from his mouth, it says, came a sharp two-edged sword. Um, <clears throat> and, and you children, maybe you're, you already have superheroes, right? Because this is the representation of Jesus as... Uh, having perfect warrior skill. And uh, who's your favorite superhero? Well, maybe it's X-Men, maybe it's one of these kung fu fighters or something. My, growing up, I'll show my age, growing up, my favorite, one of my favorites at least, was Zorro. He was a swordsman. So you're white-haired people, you're the only people who may remember Zorro, right? He was a swordsman. But he was so skilled that when he was in a sword fight with somebody, he could, he could write his signature Z across the clothing of the person's chest without breaking the skin. He would stop enemies without killing them almost every time. It's hard to remember a time where he actually had to kill somebody. He, he, uh, he dealt with the problems in an extremely skillful way. Or, or take the, 
the uh, example of a bought city. There, nobody could live there. You really destroyed, if it was evil, you destroyed the good along with it. That's the problem of war. Sometimes there's no alternative. Or because you're being attacked, you're being invaded by an evil army. Sometimes there's no alternative. But, but it's a really kind of thing. Inevitably, there's collateral destruction, right? There's buildings that are destroyed. There's civilian lives that are taken. Terrible thing. Well, Jesus is the perfect warrior who is able to discriminate with the sword of his mouth between the good and the evil. I, I give you an example again in life. You picture of a father and a three-year-old daughter who are going along the street and, and on the sidewalk, laying on its side, there is an ice cone, right? So the ice cream is sort of dripping onto this. And the daughter doesn't know any better. Daddy, can I eat the ice cream cone? Well, the, the daddy has to say, no, it's dirty. The daddy has no way of separating the dirt from the ice cream. That's exactly where Jesus comes into the picture. If you look into your own heart, it's the same problem. The sins... Subtle sin sometimes goes so deep into us, we can't even separate out the good from the bad. You can't separate out perfectly the good from the bad motives. It takes God himself. It takes his perfect knowledge and his perfect skill. It's the skill of his mouth, the skill of his word, to cut between the good and the evil. And it's as if Jesus taking cream off the sidewalk and magically clean it all up, right, and give it to the daughter. There's only one person who can do that. There's only one person that can clean up the inside of your life. There's only one person that can take care of the church the way it ought to be taken care of. So the message is about Christ's perfection, but a perfection which God has given for your benefit. At the conclusion of the passage, John is frightened. He sees the majesty of Christ in verse 17. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead, but he laid hand upon me. Jesus is present because he is God. He is present in the whole universe. He is present in this church to lay his right hand on you to say, I care for you. Not only do I care for you, but I am able to deal with the torn and messy and sinful aspects of the heart as well as in your relations with other people. And he says, fear not, because it, it is God with all his infant purity that's confronting you. Fear not, the first and the last, which is identifying it's a, essentially a title of God, and the living one, I died. How can that be? How can God die? Well, he died according to his human nature, right? Because he took on human nature. That's important. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's your Savior. He's your perfect Savior who has done these things so that you might be rescued out of the dirt of that sidewalk. 
and you might be restored. Now, it's a gradual process. You might be restored to purity because of him. What is the one thing in all of life that is the most out of your control? Death. Been due. There's a 100% chance, unless Christ returns, 100% you will die. For your young people, you know, young people, I know, you, you have the feeling you live forever, right? Not true. You may have many years to live. Eventually, you have to confront death. And death is the ultimate powerlessness. It's the ultimate out of control, right? There's nothing you can do. So who's going to get you through that? Well, it's only Jesus. And it's Jesus who said, I died for the reason to win victory over death. And I'm alive forevermore. No more subject to death. When you're united to Jesus, you are alive forevermore, even in the face of physical death. Now that's a message that you have to reckon with whoever you are in this room. It's a message of the ultimate saving, not only of you, but of all the world that is going to be transformed when he returns. Let us pray. Lord, we're overwhelmed with who you are, with what you have done. We rejoice that you are alive forevermore. You have the keys of death and Hades. We pray that we ourselves would commit ourselves to you, would trust in your victory, trust in your rule, trust in your knowledge and perfection as we live our lives and face the ultimate disintegration of death, that we will come through that because of your power. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.